Hi, and welcome to the Wellevate Life podcast. My name is Irina. And I'm Dr. Nas. And we're your hosts for the podcast. With this podcast, we'll be cutting through all the noise and bad information by having conversations with leading thinkers, cultural changers, and industry disruptors about shifting old paradigms and starting new conversations. Side by side, we'll be covering the topics that matter the most, from tried and tested ancestral practices to the best modern health hacks. We want to inspire you to elevate your mind, body, and soul to become the best version of you. Seasons shift, bodies shift. We've read that post on Wellevate Life. Welcome back onto our podcast. We're very excited about our podcast today with Cynthia Thurlow. She's quite a hero with her own health journey. After health scare in 2019 that left nurse practitioner Cynthia too weak to leave her bed, she was determined to support her body's healing through the power of nutrition. We've spoken about that before several times with so many of our guests, but today she's mixed it with 19 years in the medical field and her experience as CEO founder of the Everyday Wellness Project. Cynthia uses her knowledge to help empower women, especially to feel healthier and more vibrant through every season of life. She's the author very famous indeed of intermittent fasting transformation she has over 8 million ted talk views about the power of intermittent fasting her mission is to continue educating people about the transformative power of functional nutrition and intermittent fasting quite a mouthful there focus on supporting women to overcome issues related to lack of energy weight gain and food cravings. It's Motivating Time on Wellevate Life Podcast with Cynthia Thurlow. The best way to introduce this episode is through the words of Benjamin Franklin. The best of all medicines is resting and fasting. When I was growing up, the word fasting was always associated to a religious period, but over the last decade, the word diet has been associated to fasting. There are different types of fasting diets, 5-2 fasting diet, eat stop, or sorry, it's I think eat stop, eat fasting diet, 4-3 fasting diet. Where, where does all this go? It, there's an alternative fasting diet too, one meal a day fast where you fast 23 hours. And the most researched diet on Google is intermittent fasting. As a kid, Many of my friends found it strange we didn't have dinner. My mom never used to make dinner at home, especially being an Indian, it was quite strange. And we never snacked even as kids. I didn't know that growing up, it would be the trend. Some doctors would be prescribing it to patients as a treatment, cure, and medicine. You guessed it, we're talking about the new black, intermittent fasting, something both Dr. Nas and myself have been practicing for years. It's really become our lifestyle. Our guest today is an expert in intermittent fasting and nutrition, Cynthia Thurlow. Welcome to Elevate Life. Thank you. I'm so excited to join you both. (laughs) Well, you know, we have been hearing the word fasting. I I don't know if it's been the same with you and you, Dr. Nas, where that word was quite relevant when it came to any religious period going on. Um, You know, it wasn't a trend. It wasn't a diet. It wasn't about weight loss. And before we dive into all that, Cynthia, we would love to know about your very interesting journey from nurse to mom to 
uh, you know, women's advocate, or I would say life women advocate. Tell us all about it in details. I think our listeners would love it. Well, it started, I started as an ER nurse in inner city Baltimore. I trained at Johns Hopkins and went on to do my graduate work there as well. And it was a natural inclination as an adrenaline junkie to go from ER medicine to cardiology. And I worked in cardiology as an, as a nurse practitioner for over 16 years. And over that time, obviously I got married and had uh, two children, two beautiful, healthy boys. And I, I think a lot of my focus on lifestyle medicine was a direct reflection of two things. Number one, my oldest son has life-threatening food allergies that he has not outgrown. And so that really threw me for a loop. Uh, I remember when I left the allergist when he was two years old and the allergist words were carry an EpiPen and pray, which to me was woefully, woefully uh, ineffective in terms of reducing my stress and my anxiety about the potential of, of exposing him to the allergens he was allergic to, but also representative of how many of my patients over the years out of frustration, tried to navigate, you know, going to a restaurant or eating at friends' houses and, and that complex interrelationship between the, you know, the overreaction of our immune system as it uh, interacts with our food. And then fast forward a few more years. And um, in cardiology, as you can well imagine, you have this very metabolically unhealthy population. And a lot of what I did was add more medications. The patient came with a symptom. It was either testing, diagnostics, uh, adding in prescriptions, sending them for a study, re referring them for surgical intervention. And over time, it really wore on me because I started to recognize that if I could just spend more time talking to my patients about eating less often, eating an anti-inflammatory diet, getting more sleep, doing any kind of exercise, that that very likely could obliterate the need for more medication and even potentially reverse insulin resistance, get them off their antihypertensives and their diabetes medications. But what really happened to me and what got me interested in intermittent fasting was quite frankly, uh, nothing had prepared me for perimenopause, not my education, not my mom, not my sisters, not my friends. No one had prepared me for the changes that women undergo as they go through reverse puberty. And for anyone that's listening, this really begins after the age of 35. You're not 50 when all of a sudden these changes start. They start to slowly happen in your mid to late 30s, early 40s. And you may not be cognizant of what's happening. Your sleep quality may erode. You know, you may feel more anxious and depressed. Your periods may get very heavy. And so what brought me to intermittent fasting was when I hit the wall of perimenopause, it was a very stressful job where nurse practitioners here are very autonomous, at least in the practice I was in. So I was managing codes and dealing with emergencies and all sorts of things all day long. I had two small children at home. My husband did a lot of international travel. I was probably not sleeping enough and I was not uh, doing the right type of exercise for that stage of life. So perimenopause is really what brought me to intermittent fasting. But the irony is it really made me realize what, or what few resources were available to women as they were navigating the second stage of their lives. And it actually made me angry as a clinician. Cause I kept saying, if I didn't know, how do I expect my patients to know? And so that really started this platform of feeling that it was really vitally important that women understand that intermittent fasting among other lifestyle strategies are really critically more, much more, even more so important at this stage of your life to be able to navigate the hormonal fluctuations and the changes in our bodies as we, you know, go into menopause, which is 12 months without a menstrual cycle. And here in the United States, that's 51. 
Um, I don't know all the statistics offhand of, of other countries, but really important for women to understand they don't just have to survive middle age, they can thrive. And so I fervently believe that intermittent fasting is a strategy that really can change things for women in really profound and beautiful ways. Well, so much to talk about here. I mean, the gazillion dollar question I'm going to ask, we're going to start off with what is intermittent fasting? Um, so many definitions, so many different types. Um, some of them I named five, two, four, three, one, two, three, four. Um, and then I Googled it. I know I usually don't Google. There were more than almost 20 or more than, you know, type of intermittent fasting. What is it? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think the easiest way to explain it is it's eating less often. And so you're absolutely correct. There are shorter periods of fasting. There are longer periods of fasting. There's fasting associated with religious, um, you know, religious uh, rituals that go on. And it's part of all the major religions, some type of incorporation of fasting. And so when I, when I choose to talk about intermittent fasting, it's really to, to identify there's a prescribed time period in which we eat. And then there's a time period in which we do not eat. And for each person that's listening, that could be, there might be someone listening who likes doing 24 hour fast. And so maybe do they, they do that once a week. There might be someone else who prefers having a more regular schedule seven days per week. Um, what I encourage people to do is to experiment. But when you're starting off, I do like people to start with, you know, doing, you know, maybe they're doing a 14 hour fast. Maybe they're doing a 15 hour fast. So you start and you, you master the shorter fast before you expand to the longer ones. And obviously in my estimation, when I look at longer fasts, there's a law of diminishing returns for some people. If you're already lean doing, you know, a five-day fast, you're probably more than likely going to add more stress to your body than what is necessary. But if you're someone that's metabolically unhealthy, obese, overweight, doing longer fasts might actually allow you to kind of get into the mindset of being more mindful about eating, helping to get your hormones better balanced. Obviously these are broad overstrokes, but I think that it's important for people to understand there's a lot of different ways to fast, but when we talk about fasting, it's eating less often, and it's really finding the schedule and the flexibility that is most aligned with your needs and your goals. That's the easiest way to explain it. And I think for many, many people, especially on social media, you know, they'll, they'll assume that just because their best friend is doing it one way, that that's the way they need to do it. And this is where I really encourage my patients to lean into the possibility that we meet, we may each need to do it very differently. I'm laughing as I'm sitting here at 8am in the morning, my stomach's really growling. Um, and normally I don't break my fast this early. However, this might be a day cause I exercised earlier. I may, I may lean into what my body's telling me. Maybe I'm a little hungrier today and it's okay to actually have some degree of flexibility. This is so different from the kind of traditional allopathic view where everyone is kind of treated similarly. It's, you know, this is how we treat this. This is how we treat that versus a more functionally based, uh, perspective where we're really honoring our bio-individuality. If you're a woman, where are you in your menstrual cycle? If you're a man, you know, where you, did you do really intense exercise the day before? And maybe you need to break your fast a little bit earlier. Are you a menopausal woman that might have a bit more flexibility with when they can fast and how long they can fast? I think that's very well, uh, well and eloquently put. Uh, I, I don't think that gets emphasized enough, the kind of flexibility and the fact that people should lead their lifestyle a lot more intuitively. And it's definitely something that I, I see being encouraged a lot more these days. I, I'd love to hear what was, how did it come to your attention in terms of what, you know, what was your, the sort of reference point that kind of was your aha moment with intermittent fasting? I mean, I'll tell you from my side, uh, it was, 
in around about 2015, I mean, you'll know Jason Funk and I read his obesity code. And for me, that was just completely sort of life-changing, not just on a sort of personal level, but, uh, you know, from a professional level as well. And, you know, when you sort of delve deeper into sort of the nutritional guidelines and how for the best part of 60 years, you know, people have been having conversations about, you know, what we should be and shouldn't be eating. And, you know, I think we have made progress in the sense that, you know, it's now universally accepted that the standard American diet isn't really the optimal diet. I mean, it's just really optimized for abundance, cost, uh, and, well, transmutation ultimately. Um, and that, you know, none of it was based on any evidence. Uh, the association between fat and heart disease, there was no sort of established causation. And that it kind of has become accepted that, you know, the fact that we had low fat, high carb diets, and, you know, maybe the introduction of high fructose corn syrup led to the sort of obesity and type 2 deep, uh, diabetes epidemic. And then it seems then that people started to talk about fasting. What was it for you? That's a great question. And the irony is my standard response is uh, both in, there were three people in the, in the course of a week, non-medical professionals who just mentioned intermittent fasting and how women seem to be really stuck in middle age. And in my typical fashion, I was like, I'm very research-based and I found the complete guide to fasting, ironically, also written by Jason Fung. Mm -hmm. And it gave me the courage. Actually, I've said to him multiple times, I've had the opportunity to connect with him many times. And each time I've said, Jason, I really have to thank you because you gave me the courage. If there was another, you know, licensed medical professional that was talking about it and written such an eloquent way and making the information very accessible. So I read that book and then immediately I started fasting and I do agree with you that, you know, probably Ansel Keys has done more damage to, uh, you know, kind of the standard prevailing wisdom about nutrition than probably any other person in history that I can think of, uh, you know, manipulating data to suggest that uh, sugar was beneficial and that fat was bad really set us on a path. At least, you know, I, I speak fervently about the United States, uh, but most westernized countries that we've been convinced that we need to focus in on the wrong macros. We are under eating protein. We're overeating the, the wrong types of fats. And by that, I mean, highly processed uh, vegetable and seed oils, and we're overeating processed carbs. And that has really created to a lot of metabolic uh, ill health. So uh, that is where I started from. And I jumped in, uh, you know, without hesitation. And I felt so much better so quickly. I didn't lose weight automatically, which I always like to tell people, I think a lot of people come to intermittent fasting because they want to change body composition and lose weight. And the irony is that's oftentimes not where the benefits start for them. So for me, I had so much mental clarity, so much more energy, and that was really what kept me focused. Okay, I'm going to give this time. I'm going to see what happens. But then the beautiful thing is that I started talking to everyone that was willing to listen to me. And I kept saying, you know, this is not new or novel. This dates back to biblical times. We really need to look at this more closely because I knew when I was growing up, I have an Italian mom. I, do, I was not allowed to snack. I ate organ meats. My mom was crunchy before we even knew what that was. You know, we ate vegetables and homemade bread. And I mean, there was, there was nothing. We didn't go to restaurants and there was no snacking allowed. And I was expected to be outside playing all day long. I wasn't allowed to sit in my room. So I, I think in a lot of levels, things have changed so much uh, in terms of physical activity and this very hedonistic culture where everything is accessible. You know, you can get on the internet at any time. You can binge watch shows at any time. You can, there's something called DoorDash here in the United States, which mm -hmm. I've never actually used. 
but people can get food delivered to their houses at any time of the day or night. And so I think in many ways that has really exacerbated the current situation we're dealing with in terms of um, ill health. Well, I think you've highlighted a point that needs to be made, actually, that in medicine, you seem to have single individuals who wield a lot of power. I mean, we see it now currently in the U.S. with Anthony Fauci. Um, you know, we won't get into that, but, um, <laughs> I, you know, but also, you know, get into that. <laughs> we'll save it for another day. Um, but then, you know, you also, uh, there's a lot of public interest in nutrition because it almost has that kind of everyday effect. It's, it's something we're doing on a daily basis. We have a vested interest. It's a very important part of people's lives. I mean, whereas, you know, you look at you know, the, the area of sort of physics where you've got a lot of bright people arguing about the data and there's just no one outside who really sort of cares. So stuff actually progresses and gets done. The problem, you know, with nutrition and you touched on obesity, and I guess they're intimately tied, is that you enter a sort of field and there's this sort of paradigm and way of thinking about nutrition and obesity that actually just sounds so intuitively obvious that it's, you know, with with obesity, it's a kind of energy balance disorder. and No one ever questions it because you just assume that it's well tested, it's been proven, it's unambiguous, and that it deserves to be sort of dogma, but actually neither nutrition or obesity has been tested, uh, you know, in, in proper sort of trials. And I, I don't think it ever will, because I think nutrition is just going to continue to be a cesspit and, and have conflicts of, of interest. Um, and, and, you know, we're seeing the same now with kind of, I guess, fasting and all the kind of tribal wars that are going on and a lot of people sort of dipping their oars in, particularly, I guess, the food and ind- drinks industry, because they're not selling any snacks anymore, will get their lobbies going. So, you know, I, I think the good thing now, though, is, you know, we have things like this, podcasts, uh, there's a lot of information out there. And I think COVID definitely pushed people forward to become their own doctors, people are starting to empower themselves. And unfortunately, the word's getting out. Well, I think it's it's really critically important. I always say that I want people to be educated and inspired to take action. And, you know, when I started in the medical field in the 1990s, things were so different. And yet now, in fact, I was laughing with one of my kids, we were watching like a, I don't know if it was ER, and and I was laughing how different you know, paper charts and people are walking around with, you know, uh, you know, opiates and their, you know, their, their nurses scrubs that they were giving to patients. I was like, oh my gosh, things are so different now. With that being said, I think on a lot of levels that you're absolutely correct, that it is very hard to do proper research uh, as it pertains to nutrition. There's a lot of epidemiological research that's done, but it's so slanted. And a good example is the New England Journal of Medicine article that just came out um, that was based out of China, looking at you know, looking at a, a fasting group uh, versus a, a non-fasting group and, and trying to extrapolate that somehow fasting doesn't work. But then you really look at the data and it's already an unhealthy population and they weren't controlling what they were eating and, you know, really trying to look very closely at the way research is being done and how slanted it is. I just actually went to a medical conference in Miami and the irony was there was a company there that will remain nameless and they were pushing fasting food. And I just said, well, I understand fundamentally why you want to do this. You want to make it easier for people to fast. However, if we're giving people food while they're fasting, they're not fasting. <laughs> so um, the person looked at me and then looked at my tag and then realized, you know, my connection with fasting. And I said, why do we have, to, why are we continuing to convince people that they have to be eating all the time? What we really need to be saying people is eat less often, eat your breakfast, eat your lunch, eat your dinner, 
stop eating when it's dark, you know, end your feeding window before it gets dark. Um, do more exercise, like walk after a meal. I mean, all these simple things, but you're right. The processed food industry, pharmaceutical industry doesn't benefit when we are really pushing lifestyle suggestions or strategies. And, you know, you're starting to see some backlash. In fact, I had a company reach out. They wanted to be a podcast sponsor. And what were they pushing? A bar that you consume in a fasted state. And I kept saying, that's not aligned with me at all. But secondly, like, why do you keep pushing this snacks? Like we shouldn't be snacking here in the United States, as I'm sure you both know, you go to an airport and it's a treasure trove of junk everywhere you go. It's like people are convinced they're going to starve if they fly in an unfed state. And in fact, I always encourage people to not worry about eating while they're traveling, like just fast longer. Or, you know, if you have an emergency backup system, maybe you have a thing of nuts and you have some beef jerky, if that's, you know, what you like to eat, something relatively benign that you can consume. But I I feel like things have gotten so dogmatic, even, you know, to the point where if you're in the keto crowd or carnivore or you're plant-based, no one wants to play with one another. And it's like what we're really ideally advocating for in a lot of these circumstances is eating less processed food because we acknowledge that when you eat less processed food, you generally will change body composition, lose weight, reduce inflammation, get off your medications. And that's really what we need to focus on as opposed to being so polarizing, which maybe things aren't, aren't that way here. But I know even when I get on Twitter, sometimes, you know, the, the plant-based people are fighting with the carnivores and then, you know, someone else is fighting about this, you know, Bill Gates has bought more, um, more farmland here in the United States and everyone's convinced he's going to push the soy agenda. And, and so it's fascinating to me. It's like people just enjoy arguing and as opposed to just getting work done, which seems to me so pointless and silly. Well, the irony of it all is that the, the, the caloric restriction is probably the only aspect of nutrition that has been proven to consistently extend a lifespan across all species. So uh, you're right. I mean, it's missing the point. You know, these wars that are going on about what you should be eating are kind of almost irrelevant, A, because it doesn't really matter where you are on that spectrum. Just eliminate man-made food and just don't eat. <laughs> yeah, no, and it's, it seems so simple. And, you know, for me, I think that people always want to ask me, what do you do? And I always say, well, this is what works for me, but you do what works for you. Why don't you experiment? And I think we've conditioned our patients to be told what to do as opposed to encouraging them to explore, try a little bit of experimentation, which for many of them, they feel like they're free falling. And I always say, this is really how you figure out the end of one, what works for you, what doesn't work for you. Cause I can tell you what works for me, but that might be too restrictive or that might not work for someone else. I'm sorry, Rena. I, I, yeah. yeah. No, Cynthia, I think what's been happening is uh, 15 years ago, everyone was talking food, 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 what to eat. It was all about the food. But now the shift has been happening, and I think this has come along with the fasting side of it or these um, intermittent, uh, you know, fasting uh, style of call it uh, lifestyle is how to eat and what comes around our entire lifestyle. So I think it's more of a lifestyle than just food. So the concentration, I think for too long, we've been judging food too this is bad, this is good, this is too much sugar, this low, this will kill you, this will cancer. And that just surrounded us. Now there is a little more clarity um, with people. Having said that, intermittent fasting, uh, you know, anyone I know is doing it. And everyone has a different formula. So one will be following a celebrity, uh, a doctor must have said just, you know, just a 
a passing kind of comment. Why don't you do intermittent fasting? Yeah, but how to, how to do it, no one has explained. So I think how to is where I am stuck also as a person. Um, luckily, you know, I've, I've been surrounded by um, great people with great knowledge. I'm quite experimental. Um, for me, fasting was always starvation. So I never fasted, right? But I didn't know when I was growing up, not having dinner, no snacks, like you said, was a part of fasting or eating less is fasting. So when I heard that skipping a meal could be fasting, that kind of made um, it easier for me to adapt that in my life. And I said, okay, let me just kind of eat less. Let me, let me have a little, you know, little less because I had a little more yesterday. And that brought me to understanding of fasting and what my body wants, you know. And I think that whole idea of following is a bit difficult. So your knowledge, Dr. Nas's knowledge, whatever my experiences are, we share today, that doesn't mean people have to follow it in that direction. So with intermittent fasting, I would love to um, talk to you about hormones and, and its connection. Um, I read somewhere in a research again that men are more successful with this fast than women. Do you think it's because of the hormones? Well, I mean, physiologically, men and dim, men and women are so different. Men have more muscle mass. They have more bone mass. They have less, typically they have less body fat and men don't have a menstrual cycle. And so I, I remind women all the time, if you look at research comparing men and women and fasting, they will eventually lose the same amount of weight, but men will lose it faster than women will. And a lot of that is attributable to the fluctuations in estradiol and progesterone and testosterone that go on throughout a woman's menstrual cycle. And so I do think that women will lose weight with fasting, but they have to be more patient. And that's a source of endless frustration because, you know, the toxic diet industry has convinced people, men and women, that they should be able to lose weight quickly and effortlessly with whether whatever potion pillar powder is being sold at the moment. And what I try to balance it out with is to identify that unlike this potion pillar powder, intermittent fasting is something that you should be able to do throughout your lifetime. So it's a long-term, it's a long-term strategy. And so, you know, getting back to your original question, men will typically lose weight faster than women, but ultimately they can end up losing an equivalent amount of, obviously men are generally heavier than women, but equivalent amount of percentage of body fat over time. But women have to be a little bit more patient. We don't like being patient, but we have to be a little bit more patient and trust the process. And by that, I mean, really a sustainable amount of weight loss over time is one to two pounds. When people are losing 10 pounds in a week, 15 pounds in two weeks, that's generally not sustainable. And so, you know, my, my concern is always, you know, making sure that you're finding some degree of balance being kind to yourself, what's most important along with the fasting piece is adjusting those macros, the protein, fat, and carbohydrates, because more often than not, it's just the changes in meal frequency aligned with changing what's on your plate that can have a large impact on weight loss. So intermittent fasting, um, everyone's doing it because of weight loss. Uh, sometimes by default, you know, things get fixed in your body and you're feeling better. You have more energy. I became more creative. I have to say that. My goodness, you know, there was this bulb always up there. And, you know, so it was, it, it, it was, and, and of course, energy. Um, but I also realized that I started it a, a bit before I thought I hit menopause. I'm sure men, menopause started way before that. Uh, and my sister is going through the same thing right now, menopause, as, as 
But because of my fasting, I'm able to manage it well, I think. Mm -hmm. I do believe this has been the key for me. I've been trying to, uh, you know, push her, promote it, sending information, but it's not happening. So it's one is the weight loss. And I do believe any fasting brings it by default. And I do believe that the hormones as a woman, I've experienced a lot. My hair has become thicker. Wow. You know, I, I was losing hair around since 15 years. I feel it's, it's, it's more bouncier. It's my skin, you know, at this age. So I think there's just so much more that comes with it and it becomes a lifestyle. It's not difficult. So in, in your experience, when should a woman or when should a person start fasting? Is there an age? Um, are there any diseases that one has that could help them, you know, if they fast and what type of fasting? And I can go on with the question. So I'm going to start with this right now. <laughs> no, no, those are great questions. So let's start with what can be fasted, can, what can be improved by fasting. So I think about autoimmune issues. We know that there's a reduction in inflammation. We know that if you fast long enough, you can get some stem cell activation. So I think about gut health, autoimmune issues, whether it's psoriasis, whether it's rheumatoid arthritis, whether it's celiac, I mean, there are Hashimoto's. I mean, those are the more common ones that I see. A lot of people will go into remission. Like I had psoriasis after being treated for Lyme disease, and I have been off medications for more than 10 years. And so I remind people all the time that it's not just autoimmune issues and gut health issues. I mean, I've had a lot of people who've had struggled with chronic diarrhea and constipation that all of a sudden they start to fast and their, you know, their, their digestive system gets kind of rerouted, you know, their, their migrating motor complex kind of catches up with itself. I think about the fact that all these metabolic diseases, you know, type two diabetes, insulin resistance, polycystic ovarian syndrome, a lot of infertility, high blood pressure, which is mitigated by insulin resistance. Um, a lot of lipid disorders, especially high triglycerides, low HDL, can be improved upon by eating less frequently and reducing that inflammation. So those are the, the big things that I typically focus on and, and think about um, for a lot of women, they'll start getting their menstrual cycles. Again, maybe they're in perimenopause and they are having wonky cycles. Maybe their cycles are coming every couple of months. They knew they're getting closer to menopause. And then all of a sudden they're getting their cycles more regularly. So it can definitely help there as well. But when I think about, you know, men are in one, you know, group, then there are peak fertile years, women, you know, under the age of 35, they have to fast differently because even if they're choosing not to have children at that point in time or at all, uh, their bodies are really exquisitely attuned to information that it, that it takes in about nutrients, stress, et cetera. Then there's perimenopause, you know, the, the 10 to 15 years preceding menopause. And then there's menopause. I kind of put men and women, women in menopause and men in a bucket, because generally menopausal women do actually do very well with intermittent fasting. However, the caveat is for all women, sleep quality, stress management, mm -hmm. nutritional choices. And then the other thing is sleep. And I always say, I don't care how old you are or what gender you are. If you can't sleep through the night, please do not in, add in intermittent fasting. It is a hormetic stress. It's a beneficial stress in the right amount at the right time. And so when I'm looking at peak fertile years, women, I remind them that their menstrual cycle is a superpower. They really need to lean in. There's a time in their menstrual cycle to fast, um, AKA the follicular phase when estrogen predominates, we tend to be more insulin sensitive. We can push our workouts. We could go lower carbohydrate. We can fast longer. 
And then as they get closer to their menstrual cycle, starting in the luteal phase when progesterone predominates, they're a little less insulin sensitive. They can't push their workouts. Their sleep may be disrupted. They back off on fasting. Perimenopausal women, it's all the lifestyle piece. Um, and all the way along when women are still cycling, I remind them that their menstrual cycle is a barometer. If you lose your menstrual cycle because you start fasting, that may be a sign that it's not working for you. And that's an important distinction. Obviously, menopausal women and men don't have to worry about that. And that's in the, in the beauty of when I identify that, that men and menopausal women, more often than not, can fast day to day, week to week, because they just don't have the same degree of hormonal fluctuation. But that's kind of a big like bird's eye view of my methodology as it applies to the genders and, and certain life stages. So I always say, you know, when I look at younger women, I always say, even if you're choosing not to have children right now, we want to protect your fertility. We don't want you doing long fasts, and especially if they're very lean. That's why I keep talking about lean women. If you've got a BMI like under 20 and you're fairly lean and you're exercising a lot, you probably should maybe fast a couple times a month. There's no need to be doing that every day. Can every woman do 12 hours of digestive rest? Absolutely. Can every man do that? Absolutely. And that's actually the benchmark. I always say it's a public health crisis and the benchmark should be 12 hours of not eating every day for every adult human being. And if you can't get to that, then you've got work to do. Yeah. I think but you hit a nail on the head. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Sorry. No, I was just going to say, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. I know you cover this in your book, the intermittent fasting transformation, which is nicely positioned behind you. And we'll come back to that. Um, <laughs> There's definitely, yeah, I think people just don't consider that there's a number of other variables involved. People will just, you know, I'm sick of, of the, t- the amount of times that people come to me and say, oh, I've tried this 16.8 or 8.16 and it's not worked for me. It's just a load of rubbish. Um, yeah, well, the fact that you're not sleeping and you're highly stressed and you're over-exercising. I think also the common thing I see probably more so in women, but actually both women and men, is that they almost turn their intermittent fasting into a continuous caloric restriction. So they, they can never get their head around the fact that it's truly meant to be intermittent and that you're not meant to be calorie depriving yourself during your, your eating period. And as you know, I, I, the problem being at the same time, they're going to be going into a sort of metabolic slowdown. So I, for me, that's the biggest challenge behind both sexes, but particularly women. I have to agree with you. And I, I just took over co-hosting duties of a new podcast and uh, there's a lot of um, differing opinions about OMAD. So one meal a day. And I say to people like, OMAD is great. You go on vacation, you eat too much. The next day you do one meal a day and you get back on schedule, but chronically over time, especially for women, I a hundred percent agree with you. I have women will say, I eat one meal a day. And I said, how do you get in enough protein? You know, let's talk about the fact that it's not a question of if, but when sarcopenia or muscle loss with aging is it will happen. You have to eat enough protein. You have to lift weights. You have to get high quality sleep. Uh, and you know, most women are getting like maybe 40 grams of protein a day. And I'm like, you can't, it's, it's not a question of if, but when, and it happens to men too. Uh, and some of it's, you know, exacerbated with these hormonal fluctuations as we're getting older. But I always say my, my recommendation is hundred grams of protein a day, period, minimum. And so when women hear that and men too, in fact, I'm always harping at my husband. I'm like, there's no way you got in hundred grams of protein a day. Um, really kind of emphasizing if you want to stay metabolically flexible, you have to making, be making sure you're hitting those, those variables. So when people say I ate one meal a day, or as you mentioned, they're chronically calorically restricted, 
your body is going to perceive that you're in a deficit and it's going to actually get to a point where people hit plateaus. They can't figure out why they've hit a plateau. I'm not hungry. And I say, well, you have to start doing some reversing of what you're doing because you're going to put yourself in a chronic state. And this is actually a strategy I talk about in the book that you have to have a day where you have a wider feeding window to remind your body you're not starving and whether or not it's higher protein, higher carbohydrate really depends on your metabolic flexibility. But I think it's so, so important to reemphasize that irrespective of gender, if you are eating in a chronically caloric deficit over time, your body is going to get comfortable. It's like, I, I always say that, you know, consistency is a good thing, but we need variety. We need variety in our fasting schedule. We need variety in our exercise, our nutrition, because our body kind of gets lazy. Um, you know, fun to, it likes homeostasis. It likes to kind of cruise along. That's why, you know, high intensity interval training or weightlifting. I mean, it's ways to stress our bodies in beneficial ways and, you know, little micro increments, but I'm so glad that you brought that up because it's, it's a chronic problem that I see. People are like, I like fasting. I want it more. If a little bit of fasting is good, more fasting is better. And I'm like, well, not so much. You know, you have to be very careful with your approach and your methodology. And I, I, I you know, for me, anecdotally, the, 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 I've had consistently cases. I mean, we do a lot of weight loss, consistently cases of people who have done exactly that. Um, they'll be maybe losing weight, but they're losing proportionally sort of more muscle mass. And then, you know, I don't see them because they go on holiday and then they come back three weeks later and they start apologizing because they fell off the bandwagon and you put them on the embody and look at their body composition. It's actually better than it was because yeah. you, they've taken themselves inadvertently out of that caloric restriction. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting where we'll go on vacation with our children in exactly 20 days. I'm so excited. And I have to relax what I do with fasting when I'm traveling with my family. Cause I have teenage boys, they eat voluminous amounts of food. Um, usually what I end up doing when I travel with them is I eat a big healthy breakfast and then I eat dinner. And so I have a wider feeding window. Um, and then I don't eat lunch. And of course they eat like three massive meals a day, but I always feel like when I come back, it's a good way to remind my body that variability is good because, you know, like many people, um, we're just so strict and we're just so controlled and constrained. And it's really important to allow our bodies to have a rest. The other thing that I think about is when someone goes on vacation and their body composition changes or they lose weight, it's because their cortisol levels are lower. You know, they're under less stress or probably on vacation, just enjoying themselves, sleeping in, having less stress. And I think that's also really important for people to understand that if you're chronically in a stress state. Guess what? Your insulin goes up, your cortisol goes up. Uh, you know, you put yourself at a disadvantage if you're trying to lose weight. Well, I think it's because the public still don't know yet. This public still think, I think in general, that the benefits of intermittent fasting come more from the hormonal and non-calorific changes, not from the caloric deprivations. I think that's still a transition that yes, yet to happen. I mean, for me, I think truthfully in humans, I guess we don't really necessarily know exactly what the sort of dose curve looks like in terms of duration of fasting and kind of physiological sort of output of whatever desired consequence you're looking for. I think also, secondly, this process, I think we mentioned already of sort of autophagy, which is the kind of cellular cleansing and rejuvenation. It's just something that we can't really measure. So I, I think until we can sort of, yeah, give some, some, someone a bit more precise information, then, uh, you know, some people just aren't going to grasp it. But as you say, I think it is going to be probably 
has to be sort of adjusted to the individual. I mean, I, I'd be interested to hear what your schedule is. I mean, from my personal perspective, I try and do on most days of the week a kind of 16, 8, and then at least once a week I'll do a 24-hour and then try and maybe seasonally do something uh, longer, maybe sort of three days or so. What, what What's your – I know you're flexible, but what's the sort of general trend you try and do? Well, I always have a, a day and I don't call it a cheat day because I don't even like that term, but I have at least one day a week where I have a wide feeding window and I'll have three solid meals. And it's usually a day I'm like, wow, I'm full, but it's to remind my body that, okay, we have days of deprivation, but now we're kind of having this refeeding. Um, I have noticed since I've had an aura ring, which I tell everyone is probably the most valuable other than a continuous glucose monitor uh, thing that I, that I use my body really wants me to break my fast earlier. So very aligned with chronobiology, I will break my fast usually around 10 AM, which is typically around 16, 17 hours fasted. That's my happy place. Uh, and then I have my last meal before five o'clock and that is what has worked best for me, but it also aligns itself with my aura ring data, my HR. So heart rate variability, my blood sugar, I do much better. So I, I say to a lot of women, maybe, maybe adapt or even could be applied to men as well eat when it's light outside. Don't eat when it's dark outside. Like my aura ring just screams at me if I eat within three or four hours of bedtime. And so, um, you know, I'm sure your listeners are super savvy and know that we have melatonin clocks throughout our body, not just, you know, melatonin is not just, um, secreted in a penile gland in, in our brains, but when you eat a large bolus of food, as an example, you eat a large meal at night and you try to go to bed, your body is not going to be secreting melatonin to allow you to sleep. It's actually going to pump up some cortisol so you can keep awake. So your body's trying to process this bolus of food. And so this is where a little bit of experimentation can be helpful. A lot of healthcare providers, doctors, nurses will reach out and say, help. I don't know how to fast around my hospital schedule, my call schedule. And I just say, make it easy for yourself. Eat before you go into your, to your, to your work and fast during your schedule. And they're always amazed at how much effortlessly and easily it is to just go to work in a fasted state. But you did touch on a really important, um, an important benefit of intermittent fasting, which is autophagy, which I just want to elaborate on because people sometimes get caught up in, well, I didn't fast for 18 hours. So how could I possibly have upregulated autophagy? And I always remind people to really look at the research. There's no way to, to know exactly when it gets when it starts to really increase, you can make the argument that one 24 hour fast, um, you're definitely going to get a further upregulation in autophagy, but you're still doing things of benefit, even if you fast for 15 hours. Um, so my personal philosophy is 16 to 18 hours fasted most days, one wider feeding window. And I probably do one or two 24 hour fasts a month. I think after spending 13 days in the hospital three years ago, I haven't really had an interest in doing really long fast because I spend such a long time not being able to eat. And that is definitely, you know, left an indelible impression on me, but I do encourage people to experiment. And if you're someone that has a lot of weight to lose, I think doing longer fast can be of benefit. Um, obviously really attuned to, you know, are you on high blood pressure medication? Are you on diabetes medications? Will you need adjustments or closer monitoring? I think that's important just to, to mention that as a caveat, but most people do fine just staying hydrated and understanding what, you know, what constitutes a clean fast, I think is another important distinction. So in an unfed state, the things that I recommend are, you know, bitter coffee. So plain coffee, bitter teas, there's actually polyphenols in both of those that allow your body to, you know, take benefits from the plant-based compounds, which can upregulate fat oxidation and then water with electrolytes. I think that's also important to, to actually mention there as well. 
So I want to step in here, Cynthia. Um, there are two aspects of fasting. One is just a general lifestyle, to lose weight, to experience, to um, give your body a break. And one is as medicine, you know, mm-hmm. not many doctors are following uh, or prescribing fasting uh, when people have some chronic diseases or chronic problems. Very few of them, like Dr. Nas or other functional doctors or more on the complementary sites, they had more knowledge. They've studied nutrition. They mm-hmm. know about it. Um, so my question here would be, if a patient, somebody comes to you, I come to you, what kind of checkups, what are, what are the diagnoses that, you know, for you to be able to put a plan and say, all right, this is where I think you should begin and let's work together. And after how long does one realize that, yes, this is working for them? Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I have a, a woman that we're currently working with who was on, she came to us on diabetes medications, on blood pressure medicines, and within six weeks got off her medications. That's not per se the norm. But I would say more often than not, the common diagnoses that we, we are seeing are people with, with Hashimoto's, so an autoimmune thyroid disorder, weight loss resistance, um, the high blood pressure and uh, insulin resistance, um, PCOS, so polycystic ovarian syndrome is very common to see. I would say, you know, the other, the other thing that's, that's very, very common is this kind of chronic fatigue, which can be related to so many. It's kind of like a bucket diagnosis. Um, much like when I worked in the ER, if anyone came in with dizziness, I would kind of roll my eyes because it was like, it could be a hundred things. Um, but really digging into what is contributing to this. I see a lot of irritable bowel syndrome, uh, which more often than not can be improved upon by eating less frequently and really understanding what foods are going to help support, you know, whichever direction their IBS goes in, whether it's diarrhea or constipation, So more often than not, that's where women tend to be, plus the perimenopause and menopause piece um, and really helping women, you know, do they have very heavy menstrual cycles? Are they dealing with chronic insomnia, you know, really digging into what's actually going on. But uh, I would say my, my greatest success as of most recently was a woman who got off both diabetes and blood pressure medication in six weeks. And it was because she really was ready to do the work, you know, to do the fasting to, you know remove inflammatory foods to really eat whole nutrient dense foods, um, you know, dive into the lifestyle piece. And it was wonderful to see, cause she was 10 years into menopause when she came to see me. And, and today that was so encouraging, especially when you see so many women in middle age that are so weight loss resistant, helping them understand. And then for those that don't instantaneously lose weight, you know, really looking at what's going on in gut health, doing that type of diagnostic testing, working with a test called the Dutch, which is dried urine and saliva to look at hormone balance as well as regular serum labs. But I think there's definitely a constellation of symptoms and diagnoses that I typically work with. And those are the, probably the most common ones. So minerals and vitamins play a huge role, of course, when you're fasting, it's it, any normal body should have a good balance of both. Is this something uh, you would recommend is very important for people to do before they start any form of fasting is to get their mineral and vitamin tests done? Well, I I mean, I I think they should be working with someone. Everyone should know their vitamin D levels. We know it helps with insulin sensitivity. We know that's important for immune function as one example. Do I think people need, you know, do I think people need formal testing to check magnesium, sodium, chloride, potassium, not per se, if they're not, if they're on like a medication that causes them to lose electrolytes, like they're on a thiazide diuretic, which is used sometimes for blood pressure, potentially then, but more often than not, we, I I feel very comfortable indicating that 
if you are in a fasted state, especially if you're lower carbohydrate, you're losing glycogen stores, you know, glycogen will pull water. You'll have renal loss of water um, and electrolytes that I always say it's a best practice. So making sure people understand it's not just about salt. It's really about um, magnesium, potassium, chloride, and sodium in the right amounts. And so I'm, I'm very liberal with my electrolyte repletion protocols. I think because of many years working in cardiology and electrophysiology, I got very savvy at figuring out exactly how much I could push and pull and keep people out of the hospital without palpitations and symptoms. And so that is kind of aligned nicely with intermittent fasting. So yes, all of my fasters, best practice recommendations is that they do replace with electrolytes and they salt their food with high quality salt. You know, here in the US, we have a company called Redmond's um, mm-hmm. and the salt's actually uh, harvested here in the United States. And so I tell people, don't be afraid to actually utilize salt. We've been convinced that sodium chloride or the, 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 the processed, in- processed food industries salt, which is like an adulterated iodized salt, that's not equivalent to the type of salt that I'm talking about. And actually our bodies need these minerals. We lose electrolytes when we urinate, when we defecate, when we breathe, when we sweat. Uh, and if you fast and you're going lower carbohydrate, you will definitely have more loss of electrolytes and that can help buffer and mitigate something here in the United States that they call keto flu, which is really just a reflection of the loss of electrolytes that are not being repleted properly. And that's when people feel crummy. They're like, oh, I think I'm going to go back to that processed diet. No, 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 no. We just need to get some electrolytes on board and you'll feel a whole lot better. Well, in the region here um, recently, around a month and a half ago, there was Ramadan. As you know, it's the fasting month. Uh, Many people got COVID during that time. And remarkably, they continued to do their fasting and really didn't have any problems. Um, You know, in fact, they had less, less symptoms no serious issues, were up and about, had energy every day. So during COVID, do you recommend or do you work with people who have had uh, long COVID, uh, you know, symptoms, fatigue and all that? Do you recommend fasting? Well, I think I would speak to the acute phase of a COVID infection that I think it's entirely reasonable. We know that it'll upregulate getting rid of disease disordered cells, almost like the body's taking out the trash. You know, this you know, uh, disease disordered organelles, mitochondria, et cetera. When we talk about long haul COVID, that's really speaking to mitochondrial dysfunction. And I generally, if someone's really struggling, there are specific centers in the United States where I refer them to, because here, obviously, you know, there were studies done in 2018 that 88.2% of the population was metabolically inflexible, you know, during the pandemic, that's actually gotten worse. And so a lot of the people that I see with long haul COVID symptoms are really people that are insulin resistant, diabetic, and, and generally speaking, I refer them on to specialists, but in an acute situation, absolutely. And in um, October of last year, I actually presented uh, some information. It was the first time I was able to speak publicly about COVID, which was really nice as, per, as it pertains to fasting research. And you were starting to see even in vivo that there was tremendous improvement with COVID symptomatology just in a, in a fasted state. And it makes sense. You know, you're, you're allowing your body to focus in on, uh, you know, fighting the infection as opposed to digesting food, um, keeping your blood sugar much more stable, staying hydrated, et cetera. And more often than not, I've seen people improve within two to five days, just in a fasted state, or maybe they're doing just a bone broth fast. Maybe they're consuming, you know, to stay hydrated, they're doing some bone broth or just sticking with electrolytes or really leaning into the physiology of their bodies. And we don't need to necessarily eat when we're sick, unless, you know, our body is letting us know that it needs food. And more often than not, the hydration and rest 
really makes a big difference. I know my entire family has uh, gone through a little blip with COVID and my kids had symptoms for 24 hours. I think I had symptoms for 48 hours. My husband got quarantined first for two weeks um, separately in the house, but he had very minor symptoms, but long haul COVID, I think is very different. I'm sure that, you know, I, I think autophagy and uh, mitochondrial support is, is certainly helpful, but generally I refer those people on to someone that's specifically addressing long haul COVID. Yeah, I mean, to, from my perspective, um, I, I agree. Uh, it's controversial, but I, I agree. If you look at it mechanistically, um, one of the things that you're doing in, with, with fasting is you're downregulating, as you mentioned, I think earlier, mTOR, which is one of the nutrient mm-hmm. sensors. And we, we know from the studies of how they've used rapamycin to downregulate mTOR. And the, 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 I think it was in the elderly where they looked at vaccine response and also response to viral infections, and they had far more resilience. So there's no reason to believe that fasting, which is a very potent inhibitor of mTOR, wouldn't have the same effect. Agreed. Well, uh, Cynthia, it's been um, a wow factor for us, you know, to talk about something that we've been hearing on a daily basis uh, to get some clarity. Um, You know, what are the most common, this would be my final question today is, what are the most common myths around intermittent fasting? Oh, goodness. Uh, I would say number one (laughs) is fasting is starvation. And I have to remind people that fasting is choosing to eat in a prescribed time period, it is not starvation. Um, number two, I, I think there's this misconception that we have to eat breakfast. And, uh, you know, that kind of goes along with fasting that, you know, you can safely skip a meal and be a healthy person and, you know, give your, your body an opportunity to tap into these intrinsic properties that we've talked about reduction in inflammation, upregulation and autophagy, you know, improving biophysical markers, et cetera. And then thirdly, I would say there are a lot of people who think that if they fast, they're, they're necessarily going to lose muscle. Um, and I remind people that if you're hitting your protein macros and lifting weights and getting enough sleep, you should not be losing muscle while intermittent fasting. Uh, I think this is something that a lot of people fear and, um, a lot of those limiting beliefs will fuel decision-making. And I always say, like, if you're really concerned about it, do we have something called a bod pod here in the United States where it can measure, um, your body fat percentage and, and how much muscle mass you have. And so I always say, you know, do it, uh, do it before and after, you know, before you start fasting and after you start fasting, if you're doing those other variables, hitting your protein macros, getting enough, getting enough muscle protein synthesis, getting high quality sleep and, and make comparisons and see for yourself. But it's been more often than not, people are surprised. They'll actually lean out a little bit. They'll lose some body fat while they're fasting and they'll actually, you know, improve their, their musculature of their body. So those are probably the three most common myths that I hear. And I always have an answer. I always say like, there's, I always have a response. A lot of it's, you know, those are limiting beliefs that people choose to embrace. I think we have to be open to changing our perspectives and our opinions as we, I always say I'm a lifelong learner. Never would I've ever guessed that I would be standing on a platform talking about intermittent fasting, given what I used to tell my patients back in the 1990s, but now I know better and now I do better. And I try very, very hard to make sure that people have good information so that they can make good decisions for them, for themselves. Well, I am guilty. All those three myths that you've spoken about, I have those questions in my head. I went through the same process and I think uh, I calmed down just by thinking of childhood days. It's going back to the basics, going back to 
simple way of leading your lifestyle. And, um, and I think that's what did it for me. Uh, Cynthia, thank you so much for your time today. And it's been abundance of knowledge. And uh, I'm sure our listeners have benefited from this, for sure. That was an honor and a privilege to connect with you both. Thank, thank you, you Cynthia. Much. Take care. See you thank soon. Thank you. Well, folks, that's the end of the show. And we hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Thank you for tuning in. And until next time, for more tips on how to elevate your life, you can reach out to us at wellevate.life.